Uh, this afternoon, I want us to settle on some very serious business. I believe that any opportunity that God gives for his word to be shared is a soul-winning opportunity. And so God is in, interested in your salvation today. Amen. And even as we have this session, how I pray that you may listen with your heart. Uh, don't just listen with your ear, uh, but listen with your heart. Allow God to speak to you. Allow him to uh, convict you of the truth. Allow him to transform you and make you what he wants you to be. So uh, like you said in the morning, I'm Joshua Menya. And uh, I am a full-time evangelist, full-time medical missionary. And uh, at the same time, walking up and down in God's business. Amen. <laughs> Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you and glorify your name for this Sabbath. We thank you for the message in the morning. And Lord, as we want to have a study this afternoon here in Egerton, may this not be an accident, but Lord, may it be the outpouring of your spirit, your very words speaking to your children. Arouse us, O God, and use me just as a vessel. For I know nothing, I don't know how to go out or to come in. And Lord, I pray that may, may I simply be a reservoir, a channel through by which your word is spoken. May glory and honor be to none other but to you, O Lord. May Christ be lifted up. May he be magnified and may he draw all of us to him. For this we pray in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Behold, behold your God was our theme in the morning. And uh, I want to stick with that also this particular afternoon. Behold your God. This is a passage in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verses 9. And I want us to go right there so that we can read it as we do our study today. Isaiah 40, verses 9. There's something in this passage that is very deep, and I pray that as we study it, God will grant us a deeper understanding. Isaiah, and we're looking at 40 and verses uh, Nine, it says, O Zion, that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength, lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold, behold your what? Behold your God. Now, this passage is a prophecy. Uh, many of us may be looking at it as just one of those beautiful passages in the Bible with some powerful poetry. But this passage is a beautiful prophecy. And I must say that every ministry in the world that has an attachment to the Seventh-day Adventist church is bent on fulfilling this prophecy. O Zion, that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings. Lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Now, I want to talk to you in a very personal way. There are many people who may be present in this church or may be present in God's house today who are not aware that time itself is almost meeting at a, at a cataclysmic remark or, or, or encounter with eternity. We are, we are at the very end of things. There are some of us who perhaps, when you look at the current situation in the world, you may be entertaining the idea that we still have a lot of years in this world. And I tend to believe that is the idea that many students who are in school still possess. That is the idea that many business-minded men and women who are engineering ideas in the business world may be having. And that also may be the idea of many who perhaps are making new inventions and discoveries in science. Those ones who may be planning to get married and have kids and build homes. The, the perception that many of us are having is that we have a lot of time and uh, I can say in a large extent that very few people are actually privy to the fact that time itself is almost clashing with eternity. God 
has been very patient with our church, the Seventh-day Adventist church. But there is something that he wants to do within a very short time, and that is the reason why we have this burden. When you read Testimonies to the Church, Volume 9, page 11, you will find Sister White makes a very interesting remark. She says, The calamities by land and by sea, the unsettled state of society, the alarms of war, she says all these things are portraying that the forces of darkness are combining, they are consolidating. Then she says the final movements will be rapid ones. The indication she's giving is that when we see calamities by land and by sea, when we see the society unsettled, strikes are common. There is unrest both in the political world, there is unrest also economically, there is unrest everywhere. She's saying that we must know the forces of darkness are combining and consolidating. They are strengthening for the last great crisis. Then she says the final movements will be rapid ones. The final movements are going to be rapid ones. So the indication that she's giving is society cannot be fixed. As I am speaking to you right now, there is no proper way of fixing the economy either of this country or the economy of the world. I know you know everything has gone up. Fare has gone up, isn't it? Fuel has gone up, isn't it? Food has gone up. Tax has gone up. Everything is going up. We know at the very moment we are in debt. We will always be in debt. And every time we have a budget, it's always a budget with a debt. I think you already know that, isn't it? We know at this particular moment, insecurity is at the highest in every part of the world. When you look at the news, either they are, they are kidnapping children, or they are killing people, or people are disappearing, or they are mass murders, or there is the issue of Caroline Kagongo, the one you had the other day, and so many other things are going on, either rape of children, rape of women. I mean, if you, if you are reading the newspaper every day, it is, it is just full of ideas that make you sick. I was sharing with my wife the other day, that I have a problem these days watching news or reading the newspaper because it makes me sick in my liver. <laughs> that is another way of saying it is full of saddening stories. There is nothing beautiful in the world. And by the way, there was a research that has been done all over the world. Depression cases are more in the world today than ever. I will repeat, depression is one of the leading illnesses that men and women have in the world because there is no solution to the problems of the world. There is no solution to the systems that the world has put in place. You know right now, cancer. Cancer has become so common that all over the world, they are saying that out of every five people, one person has cancer. Or the probability of that person having cancer when they grow up is high. That is how serious it is. Out of every two people, one has a heart disease. And half of the people who have heart disease don't even know they do. I mean, the complication in the world is that we are nearing the end. If you look at the condition in the environment and everywhere, the only answer to the problems that are in the world are cannot be found in politics. They can't be found in BBI. I'm not against BBI for those ones who are here. I don't want to talk about BBI. It's not my problem. But I'm saying BBI cannot solve the problems in this country. I respect the agenda that the United Nations may be having regarding world peace and other things, but the agenda of the UN cannot solve. The only problem that is in the world can be fixed by the coming of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus. But I want to tell you, there is a problem in the church. And this problem in the church is very hard to solve because church members don't even know they have the problem. It is a problem that we need the Holy Spirit to be able to decipher and help us understand. That is why in the text, you will find this text is portraying rejoicing. It's saying, O Zion, that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength, lift it up, be not afraid, say unto the cities of Judah, behold your what? 
Behold your God. Now, I want to ask you a very important question that will help us decipher the meaning of this text. Which is the most powerful experience that this planet has ever had since creation? Anyone can give me an answer? Which is the single event in this planet that I can say is the thread upon which this planet is held? The coming of Jesus as a human being. Thank you, Aha. Uh -huh. Anyone else? The death of Jesus. Now we need to understand the single event that has caught the universe's attention is the coming of Jesus and his death on the cross. But now I want to complicate this issue even further. Why is the coming of Jesus the single most important event in the whole universe? Why would that be? So the big question that I'm asking is, if that is the single most important event, why is it the single most important event? Why would that be? Uh -huh. The event brought salvation within the reach of humanity. I want us to look at a few texts. Remember our theme is Behold Your God. But I want to present it in a Bible study format. When you rush with me to 1 John, 1 John chapter 3. Just move there quite fast so that we utilize the time we have. 1 John 3 and I'm reading verse 8. The Bible says, he that committed sin is of the devil. And then the Bible says, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy what? The works of the devil. So the Bible is telling us that actually the devil committed sin or he sinneth from the beginning. And Jesus or the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now, we need to look at the world problem and the solution to the world problem in a bigger picture. I want to make sure you understand this particular evening that sin is not something that began with Adam and Eve. Sin is a, a problem in the universe, but the fixing of sin takes place in planet Earth. No, you didn't get me. God is good. I'm not saying you didn't hear me. I'm just trying to make sure it sinks. Amen. <laughs> Sin is a universal problem, but where, which is the central or the capital city of solving sin? It is the planet Earth. Are we together? But sin is a problem that began in heaven. In fact, if you look at the Bible in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, which I will not read right now, you will realize that the mystery of sin is introduced as a covering cherub. An angel who was called the cherub that covereth, and the Bible calls him Lucifer. Lucifer was not an angel who was serving in the backyard. Lucifer was the angel who was standing in the immediate presence of God. Meaning, where God's throne was located who was standing on the right-hand side of God's throne? It was Lucifer. Question number two, what does the name Lucifer mean? Lucifer means light bearer. The indication was Lucifer was supposed to be one of the key angels in heaven who was to portray the character and the image of God. Because the Bible makes it very clear in the book of Matthew chapter 5, verses 14, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it where? Under the bushel, but they put it on the candlestick that it may give light unto all that are in the house. Therefore let your light so shine among men that they seeing your good works may do what? May glorify your Father which is in heaven. The indication is if Lucifer was light bearer, the indication is that what did Lucifer possess? The light the image and character of God. 
But the interesting thing that I need you to understand as we are studying today, what I'm studying is so critical and so important. How I pray that God may hold your mind and make this sink. Sin began in a perfect heaven with a perfect being in the immediate presence of God. Now that has not sunk. I repeat, sin began in a perfect heaven, in a perfect being, in the immediate presence of who? It did not begin somewhere far, it began just where God was. And that shows you clearly that sin is not something that can be prevented by environment. Am I making sense? What I'm saying is that being in the church does not solve sin. Having your name in the church role does not solve sin. Don't think that because you're a member of the Seventh-day Adventist church, you are naturally a member of God's spiritual kingdom. There is a lot much more involved in the conflict with sin than simply being a member of the church. And that is one of the things we are trying to deal with today. There are so many of us who think if we are in the church, we discuss lesson, we sing in the choir, we do ABC. We have solved sin. Sin began in a perfect environment. And even on earth, Adam and Eve, the Bible says they were formed in the image of God. The Bible says, let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness and let him have dominion. But sin began in a very perfect environment with two perfect people. But when I read my Bible deeply, I realize that before sin came into existence, God in his power had better plans. Amen. When you read the book of Revelation 13, this one I want us to be able to see and share together as we move forward. Just follow me. Remember our theme is Behold Thy God. And we are looking at it in a Bible study fashion. Revelation 13 verse 8. And the Bible says this. If you are there, say Amen. Revelation 13 verse 8. The Bible says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the... Now, question that I want to ask you very important. When was the lamb slain? From the foundation of the world. Meaning when the world was being laid, the lamb was already slain. Now when you read the book, uh, Great Controversy, The Origin of Sin, you will find Sister White makes it very clear that sin did not come because God did not foresee it. Sin did not come because God created it. Sin is an intruder for which there is no excuse. But the interesting thing, one of the key attributes of God is that he is omniscient. Amen? In fact, when you read the Bible in the book of uh, uh, Isaiah, chapter 46, verses 8, just open it up and put it on the screen. You will help me move faster if, you, if your hands are fast so that I don't have to go back to my Bible. Isaiah 46, verses 8. You will find there's something that the Bible says there. Remember this and show yourselves men. Uh -huh. Go to 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and this, none else. Then he says, I am God and this, none else. Ideally, when we look at that, that is God telling us that he is not like us. Amen. Then he says something in verse 10. He says, declaring, just move to verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient th times things are not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my. Now we need to understand this afternoon that God had foreseen sin in heaven before Lucifer sinned. God had foreseen sin in the garden of Eden before Adam and Eve sinned. Meaning he, fores he foresaw the existence of sin, yet he created Lucifer. He foresaw the existence of sin on earth, yet he permitted Lucifer to come where? To come to this planet. Now the question that I want to ask you, what do you think God does with his foreknowledge? Is he weak? Is he careless? Is he indifferent? What can we say? Because we know God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. Amen. God is not time-based. He, he is not studying time. Actually, time is God. We can say history is God's story. Amen. 
That is why Daniel says, he setteth up kings and he removeth kings. There is nothing, even the governments, the kingdoms of the world. It is not that things happen the way they want. God himself understands everything. He knows who will be the president in 2022, by the way. The Bible says, I will do all my pleasure. The indication I need you to understand is this. Before sin existed, if God indeed loves us, he had made a solution before it came. That's why the Bible says in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, God commanded the man to eat of all the fruit of the tree in the garden, but he told him, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat, for in the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely now, the big question that I've always asked people everywhere, why didn't Adam and Eve die the moment they ate of that fruit? When you take your time and read Bible commentary on that text in Genesis, you will find the answer is given. The reason why they didn't die was that as soon as there was a sinner, there was a savior. Amen. As soon as sin came into existence and our first parents fell into sin, God already had a plan of escape. Jesus stood in between man and destruction, and that is why they didn't die. You know, some may say, oh, but they died later. The death they died later is not the death that God spoke of in Genesis chapter 2. Am I making sense? It was eternal death. So God stood in between man and destruction. He said, I will give man a second chance. Now, to approve of this second chance, this is now you need to follow me very carefully. He spoke of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Let's read Genesis 3, verse 15. Because remember our theme today is Behold thy God. I'm trying to share with you that we are, we are actually dealing with the closing sins. 15, he says, and I will put... Enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. I'll repeat it again. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his what? This is the first prophecy in the Bible. Now, I want to break this down. You know, the idea we may have in our mind, this is the gospel we've always had, isn't it? Cindy. This is something perhaps we have clearly indicated. I want to break this down in a way that we can really get to understand. Who was to put enmity? Was it man who was to develop the enmity or God was to put it? God was to put enmity between the woman and the serpent. Between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Mark those words. Mark those words. Between the seed of the woman and between the seed of the serpent. And the Bible says it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now we need to get this very clearly. God understood the, 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 the conflict that man was involved in and he was aware that man could not fight and win on his own. Because of this, he brought a solution that he knew definitely will win. That is when you read through the old Bible, God never loses. Amen? There is no moment in the Bible he has lost. Now, I want to make this clearer. You know, when you look at this text, this is a summary of the whole Bible. Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now the big question is, how can this, how can this relate to our theme, Behold thy God? I want us to really clarify some particular issues that I think are, are, are pending in the minds of many people. I know most of us here are baptized, aren't we? We are baptized, isn't it? So meaning we are active members of the church. Some of us are leaders, isn't it? You are serving in different church positions. And some of us perhaps are preachers like me. You're going around and you're teaching the word of God wherever you go. But I want to ask you a question. What is the real conflict? What is the real issue that is in the controversy that is between God and Satan as manifested here on earth? I need us to clarify this and put it to a, in a point where we can properly understand by looking at some texts. 
that I think are very relevant. Let's turn to the book of, uh, of John. John chapter 3. And we are reading it from verses 1. I want to break this down bit by bit. By the time we, we complete that, behold, you are God part. I believe you're going to understand the concept. Now, there was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. We know that, isn't it? Came to Jesus at night. Just continue. Verse 2. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do the, these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. We know Nicodemus did not fully believe in Jesus, but he felt that there was something he lacked. He wanted to know about what he lacked, so he came to Jesus by night because he wanted more clarification. Jesus gave him the most powerful sermon that is ever preached, and the funny thing, that sermon was a one-to-one -one discussion. Now listen to what Jesus tells him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus did not mince words. He didn't go around the bucket. He didn't try to look uh, uh, philosophical. He didn't try to look refined. He hit Nicodemus right on his head. Except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God, isn't it? Except a man be born again. I want to repeat that. Think in your mind. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus was a very dogmatic preacher. Why was he a dogmatic preacher? Because Jesus, being God and having the mind of God, understood the conflict that humanity is involved in. You know, at this moment, as we are speaking, there are a lot of people who are born in this world. I don't know how many babies are born today. But I tend to imagine that every moment when you are planning marriages and weddings, we are planning to have kids. And without the counsel of anyone else, there are kids who are coming into the world every day. And naturally, we are part of this family. But Jesus, when addressing Nicodemus, he was talking about the concept of being born again. Now, we need to understand that Adam and Eve were created. And after creation, they fell into sin. After falling into sin, they had children. Now, these children were formed in whose image? Were they the image of God or the image of Adam and Eve? You know, that is the first big question that we need to really look into. When you look at the Bible in Genesis, just move with me back to Genesis. Since this is a study, we will just try to see how we can break it verse by verse. Turn with me to Genesis so that we see what Jesus is addressing here. Genesis, and I'm reading chapter is 5. Five verses, verses three. The Bible says, And Adam lived 130 years, and he begat a son in his own likeness after his image, and called his name Seth. Now, we need to understand something that is very important. We call it the law of heredity. Usually, the offspring of any animal or human being is born in your image. That is why God made the first donkey but we have donkeys to this day. Why? Because there's a transmission of the gene that was present in the first donkey, isn't it? Every time there is a birth of a donkey. The same, same thing with chicken, the same, same thing with rats, the same, same thing with human beings. Your offspring possesses what you had originally, and in the same, same manner, we can see Adam and Eve possessed the same, same, the same, same, the image of God was imprinted on them, but when they had children, their children were born with their natural traits. We are together on that point. They were born with their natural traits. Now, these natural traits that Adam and Eve possessed after the fall are the natural traits through which every man and woman is born. And that is why to this very day as we are sitting in this room, I tell most people, you don't come to church for me to tell you you are a sinner. You don't come to church for me to tell you that you steal. You can steal. You don't come to church for me to tell you that there's something wrong with your thoughts. You know your thoughts. You know how evil they are. You know how they wander. You know the things you imagine every day. You don't come to church for me to tell you that your life is messed up. You already can see that by yourself. 
the reason why we come to church is that there is a gospel. There is a gospel that God wants us to understand, and it is the doctrine of transforming and changing you and me. Now, Adam and Eve gave to their offspring the nature they possessed after the fall. When you read Romans 8, 7, just move there quite fast. I'm trying to wrap up a few areas that I think are critical so that we can look at the concept of beholding your God. When you read Romans 8, verse 7, the Bible says, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Then verses 9 says, So then ye that be in the, in the flesh cannot... Please God, you've gone to 9 instead of 8. So then they that be in the flesh cannot please God. Now, what Paul was saying here, I'm just trying to break down this concept so that when I make the clarification, you get the point. Anybody born in the natural nature that Adam and Eve possesses by themselves cannot please God. Now, I believe up to this point, these are things we know and we teach. Cindy, I want you to just follow me very closely because we have to uproot the problem. So meaning Joshua Menya is born in the SDA church. I may have even joined the church. But in my natural capacity, I cannot please God. I cannot please God even if I'm in the choir. I cannot please God even if I came to preach in Egerton. Amen? I cannot please God even if I give my tithe. The Bible says that the natural man or the carnal mind is enmity against God for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, this message has been used and repeated in many, by many authors of the Bible. When you read Job, you find Job speaks about sin is like drinking water. A man sinneth as a man drinketh water. When you go to Jeremiah 17.9, he says that the heart is... Deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? In the same book, Jeremiah, he talks about can a leopard change his what? His spots. An Ethiopian, his what? His skin. So then ye that are accustomed to do evil cannot do right. Meaning at, at, at the root of all the things we are seeing in the world, we are seeing the Bible persists in showing men that they are incapable of saving themselves. And I want to say in our preaching, to a large extent, that is an area that is taught, but we never really come to reflect it. You know, I was talking about end times. I was talking about beholding your God. I was talking about completing the work that God has given us. But I wanted to portray to you a very sad situation we have in the church. Now, I've just portrayed to you that this is the nature that Adam and Eve had. Now, question again, why was Jesus sent? To destroy the works of the devil. Now, I want, I want us to look at this very deeply. Very deeply. When Jesus is going to be born, an angel speaks concerning his birth. Have you ever followed the words of the angel? Let's follow the words of the angel in the book of Luke. Concerning the birth of Jesus. Is it Luke or, or Matthew? should be Luke. Where the angel is addressing Mary. should be the book of Luke if you're there. And I want us to look at the part where Mary is being addressed. 128, yeah, that is where it begins. Yeah, it says, and the angel came unto her and said, Hail thou that art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Then 29 says, And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. Now just move forward. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. Now continue. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name what? Jesus. Now continue. And he shall be? He shall be great. That is the first thing. He shall be great. Now, was Jesus great on earth? 
he died a tragic death. But the Bible says he shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, the throne over Israel. Now just continue. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there shall be no end. Now, that is the account of Luke. Let's look at the account of Matthew. Let's look at the account of Matthew over the same issue. I think it should be Matthew 121 or something. If you find it, just... Sindio. Now listen to what Matthew 121 says. Follow me closely. It says, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name. Then it says, For he shall save his people from their sins. Now I want you to understand something very important. Whatever I'm teaching, I'm trying to make it like the ABC. I'm trying to make it very simple. It's a very complex issue in the theological world. But I want you <laughs> to look at it with the simplicity of the heart of a child. Now, why was Jesus sent, like a kindergarten class, to save us from our sins? Why was he sent to save us from our sins? We could not save ourselves. Thank you very much. <laughs> the real reason why Jesus came was because man, in his natural capacity, could not save himself. And so man needed a savior. So Jesus, the very name Jesus, is that he was given that name for he shall save his people from their sins. There are a lot of grown-up men and women in the church who, though understanding the gospel, feel they don't need a savior. And as long as they feel they don't need a savior, there is very little that God can do for them. Now, I want to look at the life of Jesus from a bad point of view. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, isn't it? Which kind of home? A peasant's home, isn't it? Born in a manger, isn't it? The worst place you would want to be born. Was he raised up in a rich family? A poor family? Then he lives the life we live here on earth. Now, when Jesus comes to live on earth, there is something that John says concerning Jesus' life. And turn with me to just the book of John. We'll just flick around, flick around until we get the point I want to bring home. John 1. When it begins, it begins with the idea, and the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Then when you move ahead to verses 14, it says, and the word was made, was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, and the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And John bear witness about him. In fact, 16 says, And of his fullness have we received, and grace for grace. Now, mark the points, mark the points we are looking at very fast. I'm trying to just make sure we develop this. So, Jesus was the Word. He was God, isn't it? But when he came on earth, the Word was made flesh. Now, question. To what extent was he made flesh? Was he made 50% flesh? Was he made 60% flesh? 10%? How can we find the best answer? Can you read the book of, 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 of Romans chapter 8 verses 3? Romans chapter 8 verses 3. Remember we are moving fast but I want you to follow me. If you can put those texts down, you can follow them later. You will understand my concept. Romans 8, 3 says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sent his own, in what form? In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the what? Now, when Jesus came on earth, he took the nature of man, a hundred percent. Now, if he took the nature of man 100%, what do we say he came to do? Let me give you a, a classical example that can help you review that question. If, if your class teacher realizes that you are not being good students, you are not able to understand what a student should be, and then they want, they want to assist you understand what a student should be, and then 
they enroll as a student in your school. You get my point? I'm talking about primary now. You get? How should they behave in the class when the teacher comes? Will they exercise their powers as the class teacher when they are sitting in that class? If students have made a mistake and they are to kneel down, meaning she comes to the level of the students so that she can demonstrate to the students what being a student is in her perception. You get the point? Now we need to understand something very important about the coming of Jesus that a lot of people really don't understand. Jesus did not simply come to die. Jesus came for one major purpose, to demonstrate how man is to live. Now that has passed me. God is good all the time. He came to demonstrate, he came to demonstrate that which all along we have been hearing in theory. That's why the Bible says, for what the law could not do, the law has been there all along. The law was there in Eden. The law was there in heaven. The law was there after the fall. The law was there in Mount Sinai. God came down and said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. You will not do A, you will not do B. But that law in itself could not save anyone because the law only showed you needed saving. The work of the law was to just show you you are in a terrible, miserable state and that is the reason why every time we teach that law, we show men and women, you are helpless. Usually I, I, feel, I feel depressed when you meet such men and women feeling they are something. Huh? You, you have that peacock huh? kind of personality in your mind, thinking that you are something, and then to a large extent, there are many of us who dwell more on the sins of others than their weaknesses. Have you sat near a church member who, when you sit with them for five minutes, you're sick? Sister so-and-so did, brother so-and-so said, and you're wondering, do they have time to know how God views them? Even when I look at the whole Bible, people who have come to a direct contact with the power of the Spirit in the law, they realize there is nothing good they possess. Amen? You know, Paul said in Romans 7.18, I don't even want to say it, read it. Romans 7.18, Paul made a very remarkable statement that we need to read together. Romans 7 verses 18, he says, For I know that in me dwelleth no good thing, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which I good is I find not. I mean, in, even in this powerful preacher, there was that desperation in his helplessness. Amen? He was desperate. He's saying that, I know that in me there is no good thing. That is why even as I come here as Joshua, as I'm preaching to you, I'm not preaching down to you. Amen? Because I'm better. I'm not preaching down to you because I know better. I'm not preaching down to you because I've attained I'm preaching because this is one fallen mind instructing other fallen minds. Amen? This is one man in need of grace talking to other people in need of grace. When you see your brethren stumbling, pray for them. Amen? Lest thou also be tempted. And that is why you find elsewhere Paul says in reasonable fear that I, I put under my body and bring it into subjection. Amen? That while having preached unto others, I myself may not be cast away. Amen? That is the fear that every minister must have. I bring under my body and bring it to subjection that while I've preached to others, I myself, I may not be cast away. The point here is that Paul is telling us there was nothing good in him. And that is why I'm insisting again and again, Jesus came to demonstrate how you should live. Amen? Before he dies for you, he needed that demonstration. That is why in the sanctuary, when you look at the outer court in the sanctuary, they brought some sheep to be slaughtered, but the sheep that they brought had to be without blemish. Without blemish means without spot, without sin, perfect. Jesus had to show the possibility of man keeping the law of God in a sinful world. The fact that there was no amen for that means you did not get what I said. 
God is good. Jesus came to demonstrate the will of God for human beings to understand it. That is why when you when you when you when you read when you read when you read what Jesus says in, in, in the book of just read open John, John five nineteen. When you read John five nineteen, I hope you are noting the verses so that when you have your free time you can go check them. John five nineteen makes a statement. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, uh huh. Let's read together. Verily I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself. For what? For what he sees the Father do? No, let's, let's repeat. I think you move forward. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, uh huh. The son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do, for what things soever he doeth, this also doeth the son likewise. Amen. Now, what was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying, since he became a student, like the class teacher, and he is in, a, is in the school, he is not capable to perform his powers as God. Christ was dependent on earth to the Father as you and me are to be dependent on God. And that is why he's saying the Son can do nothing of himself. I mean, Jesus was not doing what he wanted. Every time we see Jesus moving around, we are seeing a demonstration of how the Spirit of God can work in a literal human being and make them do the purpose and the will of God. Amen? He was telling you, you guys talk about not keeping the law. I want to show you by example that the things I'm doing, you are to do. That's why the book of First John, First John chapter 2, verses 6, what does it say? First John chapter 2, verses 6. First John 2, verses 6. Just find it up. Find it up. He that says he abideth in him, uh-huh, ought himself also to walk even as he walked. The indication is this. <laughs> if Jesus was with the Father, Jesus was capable of saying, the Son is not doing what he wants by himself. What he sees the Father doing is what he does. What was Jesus doing? He was coping who? He was coping the Father. Everything that the Father instructed Jesus, he did what the Father instructed him. The same, same thing we need to understand the objective of God in the church is not merely to keep the Sabbath. Keeping the Sabbath is a small percentage of God's duty to Seventh-day Adventists. Because there are many of us who keep the Sabbath, but they are liars. There are many of us who keep the Sabbath, but they are immoral. There are many of us who keep the Sabbath, but they are hateful, despiteful, they are irritable, they are impatient, they are unforgiving, they are restless. Their, their minds are filthy and are dirty. You cannot tell me that Seventh-day Adventism is merely coming here on this day. Jesus was a Sabbath keeper, but as much as he was a Sabbath keeper, the will of his father was his meat and drink. He himself said, the son did not come to do his will, but the will of him who sent him. Amen? That was the mission statement of Jesus. And whoever is a disciple of Jesus ought himself also to walk even as Jesus did what? Walked. The indication is the principle in Christ must be the principle that we also follow. Amen? I want you to get the point very well. Following Jesus is not being good occasionally. Following Jesus is not being good because it is Sabbath. Following Jesus is not dressing well because you are in church. Following Jesus is not listening to good music because it's Sabbath day. Following Jesus means your mind, your purpose in class, in the supermarket, at home, in every place. It is him, it is him, it is him. But we need to understand we must do it the way he did it. Turn with me to the book of John chapter 8. John chapter 8 we see... We see more concepts about this whole issue. I'm reading chapter 8, verses 28. And now listen to what Jesus says in 
in John 8, verses 28 and 29. Follow with me closely. You are there? Let's read together. It says, Then Jesus said unto them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you shall know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, uh -huh. but as my Father has taught me, uh -huh, I speak these things. So question, whenever Jesus was speaking, who was speaking? No, I didn't hear you well. Who was speaking? The Father. Whenever Jesus was speaking, it was the Father who was speaking. Now, can you move forward to 29? He tells them now a very amazing thing. He says, and he that is the Father has not, for I do always those things that, meaning Jesus was living a perfect life because the connection between him and the Father was never broken. There was a time I took my time to analyze chapter by chapter the book Education. I don't know if you've read the book Education, but I'm a very avid reader of Sister White's books. I don't read them just by chapter. I like reading, I, I like breaking down a book. When I want to break down the great controversy, I move chapter by chapter and find out what is the key point in this chapter, in this book, until you're done. There, there's one thing I was trying to figure out the life of Jesus. Sister White makes a statement in the book of Education. She says, the secret in Christ's ability to live a sinless life, I'm paraphrasing, was that he never broke the connection between him and heaven. Amen? He was capable of sinning. He was capable of sinning. The Bible says God sent his son in the likeness of sinful men, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Amen? He, he formed, his son was in the likeness of sinful flesh, capable of sinning. The Bible says he was tempted even as we are. Tempted even as we are. Meaning he was capable. You cannot be incapable of sinning and yet be tempted. You get the point? But what kept him from sinning was this statement he makes here, that the father was always with him. Now if you want to understand the great mystery behind Behold Your God, is in the conversation in the book of John 14. Now, that's where I want us to dwell. Just go to John 14, and let's look at it from verses 1. Now, I want you to look at it, then I want you to look at the church, because what I'm teaching you, by the way, I'm teaching you present truth. Amen? So that I look like I'm doing a normal Bible study, but I'm teaching you the third angel's message. I'm teaching you the what? Which is supposed to go to the whole world with a loud voice, with a loud cry. It is supposed to be the one that possesses the whole world. Now listen to what Jesus is saying before he goes. He has just told Peter that he will deny him three times in chapter 13. Did you know that? Peter was saying, oh, you know, Father Jesus, wherever you go, I will die for you. A great deal of self-confidence. Huh? You get the point? Like some of us have a lot of self-confidence. You think because you're preaching like Joshua, you're something. Because you're in the choir. You think because you're a deacon or deaconess or you are, that you're something. The devil, the devil has dealt with people in the past who have a great deal of things to boast about than you. Do you know that? Do you think you can impress the devil with your position? Huh? I mean, this is Lucifer. This is Lucifer. You are talking about being like God. He was in God's presence. Amen. He served in the immediate presence of God. There is nothing a human... By the way, let me tell you something in the church. Me something I've learned all along. In my service for God, I'm not working to impress anyone. Amen. As in, I'm not looking for human approbation. I'm not looking so that, oh, my pastor will now approbate me and say, ah, Joshua, you're doing a good job. Or, or my, my wife will do it or someone will do it. I have learned in God's work, your purpose, your purpose must always be pleasing God. Amen? The moment, the moment they don't, they don't, they don't, they don't come to the point where they prove what you do, what do you do? What do you do? If you're preaching somewhere and then someone comes and tells, someone you admire comes and tells you, what do you do now? Do you now quit because someone has discredited you? Let me tell you something. 
in this planet, we are not working to please men. Amen? That is not our call. But the interesting thing is that in pleasing God, we will please godly men. Now, that has passed you. <laughs> we are not working to please men, but in pleasing God, we will please godly men. Amen? Kuna watu wa mungu ambao wataona kazi ambayo unafanya na watashukuru. You get the point? Some people will just come to you and say, you blessed my heart. Amen? Yeah, but the person whom the devil is working with will come and tell you, you are a serious problem in this church. <laughs> and the devil is looking for a way to just discourage you and discourage you and discourage you. I know many people who have stopped preaching, stopped singing, stopped working because the devil whispered in their mind and told them they amount to nothing. You're not working for man. The Bible says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We are wrestling with demons and spirits. It is not about people. You have to always have that in your mind. And Jesus understood that. So Peter had a great deal of self-confidence. And that great deal of self-confidence in the book of Revelation is called Laodicea. You get the point? That great deal of confidence in self, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. It is the greatest cancer that has attacked this church. You get the point? It is attacking our theology. It is attacking our singing groups. It is attacking our missionaries. It is attacking our leaders. It is attacking us. We feel that because we can quote Ellen White, we are something. You feel that because you can sing well, you're something. You feel because you can pre preach properly, you're something. You feel because you keep the Sabbath, you're, be you're better. But essentially, when we look at the whole concept, the idea is not impressing man or God. Jesus, after telling Peter, by the way, if, if you look at the whole, the disciples of Jesus, which one do you think Jesus was more stern with? You know, Sister White says, Jesus was dealing with the disciples based on their temperament. He knew Judas. Judas was impatient and could not be corrected. That is why when he corrected Judas once, that is the moment Judas started to betray him. You get the point? When you are dealing with them, you need to be more patient, more gentle, more assuming. You get the point? Yeah. If you just go straight to them and tell them your, your, your address is not appropriate for worship, they won't come back here. You get the point? So as an elder, you need to be full of the grace of God and the Spirit. Amen? Yeah, you can't talk to everyone the same way. So you find when he was dealing with Judas, he was different. But with Peter... He was honest. And that is why one day when Peter told him that don't go to Jerusalem, he told him, get thee behind me who? Satan, for thou art an offense unto me. He was that stern to G Peter because he knew Peter needed that kind of reproof. Now, Peter is saying, I will die for you. <laughs> Jesus tells him, my friend, before the cock rose, how many times? You will have denied me. And Peter could not understand. By the way, those statements that Jesus told Peter helped him to be the Peter we read in the Bible afterwards. Amen? And let me tell you something. Listen to this. This is now for you personally. God will never accomplish his purpose in your life until you realize that there is nothing good in your life at the present moment. I repeat, God will never accomplish anything in your life until you come to a moment you understand that you are nothing in your own self and there is nothing good you can do. Some of us, God takes a whole lifetime to teach us that. You, you keep forgetting, you keep forgetting it is him, you keep forgetting it is him. And you may go through disaster and pain and suffering, and a lot of trial for God to teach you that. And that is why I believe 
to, to break the Laodicean problem and to prove it is dealt with, we have a time of trouble. Amen? Your time your trouble is not just there. It is to be a proof to the whole world that God has broken his church. 